you need a kind of fury and desire for big change in order to power you to a next step of making the world better. Hello, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to try to figure out what the hell is going on. Thank you for joining us today. I am your co-host, Laura Good. And I'm Adrian Dobbin. What is going on? I'm trying to figure it out. I'm honestly asking. What is ever going on? Honestly, like in general. Adrian, we're here to talk about rage today. I've heard it's a relevant topic in 2020. What is bringing you rage this week in particular? So I have had to stop using the headline from that old Onion article, Kitten thinks of nothing but murder all day. Like, cause I just like used it for everything. It was just like my mood. It's like mm-hmm, kitten thinks mm-hmm. of nothing but, you know, defunding the police uh, all day. I like picturing you as an angry kitten. I mean, I think that that was my logline on dating apps. Yeah. Our guest, Rebecca Traster, does sort of talk about the fact that rage obviously has always existed. It's always been sort of symbolized and remediated, as we say in the business, right? Like has sort of been represented in different ways, but that clearly after 2016, it has found a place in our lives, in many of our lives that it didn't previously have. Perhaps more prominent than it once was. Yeah, yeah, just a smidge. You know, that we're all sort of Arya Stark going to bed, like, listing all our... You never resist a Game of Thrones metaphor, can you? No, no. That was another (sighs) thing that sort of people sort of started doing, I think, in late 2016, early 2017. Game of Thrones metaphors? No, well, they they did that earlier. But, like, in terms (laughs) of, like... like, those have been going on for far longer than that. No, but, like, in terms of, like, thinking of revenge as a political category, Mm. which is separate from rage or anger, it's something that you weren't supposed to allow yourself that was going to put you on the side of the bad guys. And I do think that by now, yeah, I think Rebecca is right that there has been a kind of a shift in that both that women's rage has become legible in ways that it hadn't previously been and that white male rage, it hasn't been universalized as like, oh, that's just being human. But to say this is specifically, this is its thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like this is about it's being a white man. Category. There's a tweet from Rebecca from I don't know when, a time in 2020. Time yeah, something in this Baramy, in this Jeremy Baramy. She tweeted about Representative Ted Yoho's quote unquote apology to AOC, which, quote unquote, because the main sort of line from it was, I cannot apologize for my passion. does not meet Harriet Lerman's bullet points for an effective apology. It and does I also, not. I don't like, I truly don't like making fun of people's names, but I truly also cannot believe his name is Representative Yoho. Yeah. I'll yeah. He, he is a Representative Yoho, isn't he? He sure is. She writes, can't stop thinking about this quote unquote apology, how white male misogynist fury gets smoothly recast as passion and faith and love of country. Mm, That's mm. the central thesis also of her book Good and Mad which came out in 2018 every word of it still relevant today oh yeah (laughs) and that basically that white male rage and misogynist fury for a long time the discourse in the United States sort of could look at that and see everything but just the very obvious fact that someone was angry Mm -hmm. and yet when women spoke up in anger think of second wave feminism right the epithet angry feminist it was a way of invalidating Mm -hmm. feminism through its anger whereas like you know Ted Yoho's is apparently recast as passion as patriotism almost heroism Yeah, I'm still working out this thought. But when you were talking about revenge, I was thinking about how important it is to, in the public imagination, allow women's anger more dimensions than just revenge, partially because revenge is such well-trod ground at this time. I'm thinking of the entire plot of Felda and Louise, right, is a rape-revenge fantasy. And so often in film, especially, rape-revenge has been an inciting event for a female character and sort of been framed implicitly as the only acceptable kind of anger that we can deal with from a woman. So... You know, 2020 has provided a lot of valuable opportunities to examine sort of more garden variety rage flares, like the one I had yesterday when my two-year-old almost didn't nap. And then my heroic husband, who is actually a hero, came in and got him to nap. Bless his heart. This was documented on Twitter. I it was remember. documented on Twitter. <laughs> I had a reply ready, but I was like, I don't think she's, I don't think I want to reap the whirlwind. <laughs> reply, yeah. Adrian, yeah. coming in. Childless white man here. Have you tried? <laughs> Childless white man comes in to tell me. Have you tried giving up your job? <laughs> Have you tried going back in the home? Have you tried moral purity? Like the Lord intended? Have you tried prayer? I have. 
I have at least considered all of those options at this point, but I had this rage flare and I was like, this is it. I have found my snapping point. There it is. Now I know what I can sustain. That says so much about my privilege. But anyway, so many rage flares when I saw AOC have to speak back to Representative Yoho in her capacity as an elected official. I flashed back to, you know, a lot of unprocessed trauma from my life as a bartender and the way men treated me in that era. And like, it's just a carousel of rage, you know, like that's the thing about 2020 is you don't get the luxury of only dealing with the rage of the current moment, right? There's this whole tin can telephone system attached to all of the rage that you haven't processed from many years before that. Anyway, so that's where I am. I think about this a lot as a you know gay man living in the Castro that like, for the second time in a lot of these people's lifetimes, they have to live through a pandemic where it's pretty clear the federal government does not care about their mm-hmm. lives, right? And doesn't that's give like, a shit. Yeah. Another recurring theme, Dr. Anthony yeah, Fauci. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have to say yeah. that like after we had the conversation with Rebecca, I really sort of wanted to go back to the role of rage in my life because I think for gay men, rage has been this really interesting mm-hmm. double-edged sword. If you'll allow me a brief digression here, sort of into history. I will allow it. Another thing that happened in 2020 is that Harry Britt died. Mm. I know you've lived in San Francisco for a while. I don't know if you know who he is. He's Harvey Milk's successor as SF supervisor. And he died on June 24th of this year. Mm -hmm. And he really got me thinking about the role that anger has played for the LGBT community Mm. and especially for gay men. For those listeners of ours who don't really know very much, Mm -hmm. what do you connect with the White Knight Riots, a bit of San Francisco history. Ooh, I think I'm going to fail this LGBT San Francisco Ooh. history class. I don't know very much about okay. the White Knight Riots. Well, the white in the name is Dan White. Does that name ring a bell? Oh, okay. Well, then I'm not going to answer your question, but I am going to insert another fun San Francisco factoid, which is that, well, we'll start with Dan White was a city supervisor and the eventual assassin of Harvey Milk. He was portrayed by Josh Brolin in the feature film Milk. You know, Josh Brolin is way more handsome than he is. Yeah. I mean, he was a solid four. I don't need to. Yeah, we don't need to slander the dead. But I was going to say that I learned from the season of The Witch. I learned in that book that the assassination of Harvey Milk and George Masconi and following was it suicide of Dan White took place in the same week as the Jim Jones massacre. That's right. Crazy week in San Francisco history. Yeah, when we do crazy week, we really Yeah, San Francisco truly goes bigger, goes home. Yeah. So that's right. And in fact, Dan White... Did he die by suicide? Was I right about that? Yes. Although important for the story of the White Knight riots, not right away. Okay. Ironically, there had been... I think metal detectors put into City Hall pretty recently because of Jim Jones. Dan White sneaks into City Hall. He was dismissed from his post and sneaks in Mm -hmm. with a gun. Never quite clear how he manages to do this. And shoots Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Milk. And then kind of strolls out the building and walks into a police station. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was a former policeman and a former firefighter, deeply kind of enmeshed in the kind of machine politics of the San Francisco Police Department. Mm -hmm. Traditionally not a fan of the gay community anyway. And yes, he got arrested mm-hmm. and he went on trial. Is this where the Twinkie defense This is the Twinkie in? defense, indeed. This is the Twinkie defense, that's right. That's right. Yes. Somehow, so this is a man who had murdered and confessed to murdering two people. In broad daylight, two elected officials assassinated, yeah. And yet managed to be convicted, I think, of voluntary manslaughter right. and sentenced to right, seven right, years. Right. Super watered down, yeah. The SFPD collected money for White's defense. There were t-shirts all around saying free Dan White. Right. They celebrated right. the verdict in the case. And when White was sentenced to this really piddly sentence for assassinating two elected officials, White Knight riots broke out. So we're talking night like the time of the day, not with a K, right? Yes, yes, it. yes. It started the way that protests still start in San Francisco, people came out of the bars at Market and Castro Street and marched to City Hall. But this time, instead of just shaking their fists, they started setting cop cars on fire Mm -hmm. and smashed in the windows Mm -hmm. of City Hall. And it got extremely out of hand. And the reason I'm bringing up Harry Britt is because what happened the next day. So the next day, as so often after there's rioting in San Francisco, it was kind of a hangover kind of feeling. And the media go looking for, this is as Randy Schultz's book, The Mayor of Castro Street, describes it. The media starts sort of trawling for 
someone in the gay community to express that, yeah, this went too far, mm -hmm. right? And so the first person they ask is Harry Britt. I'll just read you the quote from Harry Britt mm. when he sort of asks, like, do you think this went too far? Do you want to say anything on behalf of the gay community? And he says, Harvey Milk's people do not have anything to apologize for. Now the society is going to have to deal with us not as nice little fairies who have hairdressing salons, but as people capable of violence. We're not going to put up with Dan White's anymore. Mm. That's such a really interesting moment. I, I love mm -hmm. discussing this quote with my students, to be honest, when mm -hmm. I teach LGBT history in the Bay Area, because it does two things, right? What, what would you say about that quote? I think that it demonstrates in a really powerful way that one of the aspects of allowing dimensionality to attach to any person is imagining that person to be capable of violence, is imagining that person to have a right. breaking point, you know? Right. And not to roll over and take it, right? Yeah. And he's not saying that explicitly here, but that was the relationship of the LGBT community in San Francisco to the police, right? Mm -hmm. You run away, you cower, you hide. Mm -hmm. But of course, the entire LGBT rights movement was premised on the Stonewall idea and the Compton's cafeteria idea of sometimes mm -hmm. you got to punch a cop. Mm -hmm. All of this broader historical context. Yeah. yeah. So on the one hand, you know, I think that it's really sort of apropos for what we're going to be talking to Rebecca about, right? This whole idea of like rage is empowering. Mm. But at the same time, I always, you know, as a cis gay man, listening to this quote from a cis gay man, isn't there also something here of like gay men reclaiming their male privilege, Ooh. right? What he's yeah, describing, you know, is, people yeah. capable of violence. This is a white man saying, just because I'm gay, you don't not get to recognize me as a man. Yeah. In a sense, he's saying, don't mistake us for women. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, I find this so fascinating. Like, I think part mm -hmm. of this quote makes my heart swell and think like, yeah, that's fucking right. And mm -hmm. the other hand, I think, mm -hmm. gee, like... Was that the point of it all that like, oh, now that we're being seen as macho enough and like violent enough and like destructive enough, mm -hmm. there's something mm -hmm. kind of troubling about this too, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to stand up to these bullies, which is great. But on the other hand, like it's our privilege, right? And I think that's something that mm -hmm. we talked to Rebecca about as well, that like, of course, anytime you think positively about someone's rage, you bring up in the interview, what's the relationship to like being as shitty as, as white, white men, men yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. And this quote from me has both of those things. Like on the mm -hmm. one hand, like, yeah, fuck yeah, you got to show that you're capable of anger. Otherwise, you're not going to be listened to in this society. Mm -hmm. But then where does that anger leave you? Mm -hmm. Right. And what does that say about the society that only the angry people have voices? Yeah. 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 Right? That's really complicated. I'm really glad you're bringing these valences into the discussion because I definitely think that there's an aspect of the quote that you just brought up that says something like, don't mistake us for little sissy girls. You know, we will fight back and girls don't do that is the right? sort of layer of implication beneath that. And I think part of what Rebecca's work as a journalist and as a feminist journalist does so beautifully is she catalogs the generative power. Generative is a very specific word for her of women's anger and the times that it has affected change and not necessarily through violence, but through yeah. the potency of anger itself and through the persistence of anger itself. Yeah. Yeah. And she also makes a really interesting point that she isn't an essentialist and she doesn't assume that power wouldn't corrupt women in the way that it corrupts men. But I guess one thing I was thinking after she said that is we've never had the opportunity to find out, you know, like, right. <laughs> I'm not necessarily arguing to, you know, give women a corruptible level of power. I'm not arguing for giving anybody a corruptible level of power. But I was, God, Adrian, of all things that I was rabbit holing into last night, it was the Stanford prison experiment. Oh. And I was thinking about what would that experiment look like with women? You know, yeah. I hope to never find out. I do believe it was a very unethical experiment to conduct. And I'm horrified that a professor conducted it in the way that he did. But that's exactly the kind of opportunity maybe that right. exists in prisons. I mean, certainly there are female wardens in prisons. So in that sense, maybe we have gotten an opportunity to examine kind of how these constructs play out across gender. Yeah. I mean, one interesting example that Rebecca brought up in our conversation is women protesting school integration. Right? Right. Those are angry women. Right. These are angry right. white women. The anger of female white supremacy. Yeah. I liked the way that we were both able to sort of say like, yeah, there is, as you say, this generative aspect mm -hmm. to rage, but it has a really fucked up relationship to institutions, right? Yes. Like it yeah. can also be incredibly sustaining of really bad institutions. Yeah, Thelma and Louise is a really good movie and spoiler alert, they die with the cops right behind them at the end, you know? <laughs> there's I know. Some, there's some analogs to be found there too. Yep, yep. Well, we could go on certainly about rage, but... 
assuming that you all probably came here to listen to Rebecca as well as to listen to us. Safe assumption, right? A safe assumption. You know, all of our power listeners that we've shouted at before, David Simon, Jane Fonda, we know you're listening. Beyonce, we know you're here for Rebecca. AOC. AOC, love you. Shout out. Susan Sontag from Beyond the Grave, I'm guessing. Anyway, (laughs) just spitballing here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Without further ado, here's Adrian and I interviewing the incredible Rebecca Traster. Enjoy. arguably one of America's preeminent experts on female rage, which I like <laughs> cannot think of a more noble like feminist distinction than that. Uh. And I want to talk a lot more about that. But one thing that I wanted to start with was what do you think of the term Karen in terms of cultural oh. resonance, in terms of its positionality within white feminism? Like, break down Karen for us. That's really interesting. And I will confess that there's a little part of me that's sort of been putting off really grappling with Karen. I mean, the actual use of the word. Like, I feel like grappling Mm -hmm. with Karen more broadly has been a big part of my work, I hope, over the past (laughs) few years. But it's interesting. I actually just sort of thought about it yesterday. I read a piece. Oh, I wish I had the piece in front of me so I could make reference to who wrote it. It was in the Washington Post, and it was about a Tulsa teacher who was trying to reckon with white supremacy and the role it had played in her life. It was a really very well-reported piece. Right. I read it with great interest. It was about this woman sort of in certain cases confronting friends, finding herself trying to be a bridge between disparate parties and realizing that she was just sort of screwing over and screwing up on both sides. It's a really good piece. And one of the things that she articulates and that the piece makes clear is she didn't want to be called a Karen. And I actually thought, and I almost tweeted, and then I didn't because I had other work to do. And sometimes now I just say, don't tweet, you have to work. This is a great example of the utility of the term Karen, right? Because when you create a character who then you don't want to be, and you create the stuff of shame and embarrassment that dissuades you from certain behaviors because you recognize them as Karen behaviors, that's actually a great example of why terms like that. And I feel like I can say this to some extent because I am also like, my name is Rebecca, right? Like Karen really broke up a period of Becky's for a long Mm -hmm. time, right? So I think it's very useful. And that piece really sort of made that clear in my mind. I think it is very useful or can be in certain instances to have a character like that because that's part of how behaviors change. And as we know, a part of these fights are changing behaviors. Does that always mean that the attitudes change? Certainly not. I would like to think, because I am a silly optimist, that in fact, sometimes it does include attitude change. The first, I actually want behavioral change. I want behavioral change. And if shame is part of what brings it, then I think we can see the utility of it. Now, that said, I do really wish that there were an equally shameful figure for white men. We have the full-on right-wing white male stereotypes, right? But we don't have one for the sort of middle and upper middle class, self-styled, progressive, or reasonable white man who I think we can all agree certainly deserves a couple of stereotypes, right? And we don't have that. And it's worth noting that at the same time that it's also worth noting that the behaviors that come with the Karen descriptor are very real and part of the systemic oppression, part of the way that white women have played a very active part in upholding and working to expand and protect white supremacy. And so we can simultaneously acknowledge that and also acknowledge that perhaps 
it would be extremely useful if we did some real work on the way that white men and white progressive men have been a big part of upholding, protecting, and working to expand white supremacy and patriarchal power. I couldn't agree with you more, and I felt this especially acutely in the publishing paid me hashtag a couple weeks ago. You know, a couple weeks Mm -hmm. ago in 2020 is now 500 years ago. (laughs) But there were a number of people, myself included, who shared what they received for their first book advance. And then a lot of the people who took flack for the big numbers were white women. And I had the same reaction of like, yes, this is absolutely the conversation that we should be having. We absolutely need to reckon with these things. And can we also please call out some of the men with seven figure advances and like talk about that role in this economy? Right. And the other thing that does happen is you see a lot of white progressive men getting in on the Karen shaming, which sure, fair enough. But hi, gentlemen. (laughs) There's no question that there's another dynamic in play there. And again, my frustration there stems really from white male participation and the joy of mocking. I'm not particularly frustrated or put off by the fact that we are calling out white women for racist behavior or acknowledging the many advantages that they, we, I enjoy and take advantage of. I think that the calling out is fine. I just kind of side eye the white men who are not getting equivalently called out and then gleefully partaking in the calling out. Well, I mean, it's part of whether or not something is even nameable, right? It's just called white male supremacy and it seems to just encompass everything. And so... Right, it's just people. They're just people. White men are just people. Right, and then, and I mean, this is in some way your argument and good and mad also about anger, right? That like, it becomes visible as anger when certain populations deploy it, right. again, with white men, their anger is presupposed, it's accepted, it's understood as a communicative act, right? They can fulminate with tea bags hanging off a tricorn hat, and you're like, this is a person who I should definitely engage with in this <laughs> the sense that they're making serious points. But if, you know, Reverend Al Sharpton says something, it's like, oh, wow, well, this is so out there, just the way he yells, you know? Well, I think that the thing that you're getting at is that white men are afforded a kind of imaginative full humanity, right? right? And that has happened in so many ways. It's obviously because our institutions and systems have been built around white patriarchy. And as everything, our courts, our laws, our government, our banks, our economy, all of this built around and still, for the most part, in the control of white straight men and built for that population. It's also cultural and how our stories are told. We can see in white men, I've written about this from a lot of angles, humanity, even in their worst moments, you know, the police can buy Dylan Roof a a hamburger. Literally about to say that, yes. Right. And by the way, I want to be really clear. They should have bought Dylan Roof a hamburger. It's just that they should also buy everybody who they arrest a hamburger, right? And what we know is that not only do they not buy them hamburgers, but that if you're not a young white man, you are much more likely to be shot and killed before you are even taken into custody. And so it's that, it's the humanity. It's that we can see this is all the stories about mass shooters, you know, and how they were spurned and they had a broken heart and how we can explain how they got to this point of even mass violence. And we just don't afford that same imaginative full humanity to anybody else. And that comes into play when you think about how we react to anger. So anger coming from a white man is something that we understand it through a lens of he's human, human right? Yeah. And anger, anger is a natural part of, it's human. Right, it's yeah. one of the many emotions we feel alongside happiness, sadness, excitement, boredom, despair, exhilaration, all of those things. Sure, we get angry. We get angry when we stub our toe. We get angry when some wrong has been done to us, we get angry when we fight with somebody. Anger is just part of, it's like a Wednesday or a Monday or a Saturday. But in white men, we understand that. And in fact, we can then imaginatively, because we're so used to imagining the human being being a white man, we can fill in all the blanks of why might he be angry, right? And the perfect illustration for this is like the Brett Kavanaugh testimony and the fact that he can yell about his dad and calendars and he likes beer and he can cry and fulminate and in fact, make an impression on the people he needed to impress, the other powerful white men who ran the Judiciary Committee, that he is full of passion. And this is because he has been wronged. And we can, like, we fill in all the blanks around the anger. And so the anger is just one mode of communication that effectively 
reaches people. And in white male politicians and leaders, it can be a sign of their patriotism, their drive, their commitment. Right. You know, it's their intensity. The yeah. Yes, well, there's also the whole genre of the white men in diners, political reporting, right? Where you go right. when you're curious about the human condition. There's a whole class of political reporting, which involves going to talk to your average, there are so many terms for it, real America. The taxi driver interview. Well, you know, yeah. the taxi driver interview, if the taxi driver interview is a white guy, right? Like, I think of it as the diner interview, and it's a diner and the working class, which is always coded right. as white, when in fact, the working class is not white and does not vote, and the working See, also class taxi vote. drivers. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but it's the white diner goer who is treated, again, like Dylan Roof with a hamburger, correctly. I want to know about the challenges, because we can understand in their complaint and their fury and their frustration, the problems we instinctively use the expressions of those kinds of frustrations as a guide to point us to the things in our politics that are broken. And so it's joblessness and it's technological change and it's the opioid addiction. And these are presented to us as the holy grail of what real Americans are upset about. And that, again, like Dylan Roof, right, good. The thing is, we need to have that same level of curiosity about other people's anger and the things that they find broken. And it's just much rarer to go out and talk to black people who are eating at a diner. White women also get counted in this sort of adjacent to white men, but it is much rarer to treat people who are not white men with that same kind of curiosity and empathy. And when they express anger, it is far rarer to see it understood and refracted through a lens of, oh, well, of course they're angry, they're human, let's find out what's making them angry right. and what could be done to address the things that are making them angry. Right, and the question of whether your anger is being made to stand in as part of bigger whole, but on the other hand, also whether or not you're angry as what kind of person you're angry, right? So the guy in the diner is angry as an American, right. whereas second wave feminists that you mentioned in the book are angry as women. Right. It sort of stops short of universality. I was wondering, though, is that changing with terms like Karen, with the phenomenon of sort of the Trump voter, that white male rage, but also, I guess, patriarchal rage, mm -hmm. right, that Karen can also embody, becomes visible as standing in for actually something kind of narrower and yeah. saying, like, you know, this may contain elements that are true for humanity, but there are parts here that are really specific to this person that is becoming visible as not just Joe Sixpack, but as a fairly specific kind of sociological group member. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're in a period in which our analysis is getting broader and deeper. And this comes after far too slow and far too incomplete shifts in who is the media? Who's doing the reporting on this? And of course, that yeah. process is so incomplete that we are seeing this summer uprisings within major mainstream media organizations about the slowness and how incomplete a transformation of a mainstream political media and pop cultural media has been, right? This is part of the conversation that we're having this summer. And it is a conversation that I anticipate we will be having for the rest of my life because there's an expectation always that we're going to have a big period of tumult and then the change will come. And as we know, these shifts take years, decades, centuries. But I do think we are in a period where the decades that have preceded this, that have meant that our media has gotten better because it is not only populated and run by the people who have had power within it for years and have had power to sort of make the reality and determine who's the universal human being and all of that. It's changing. And so that's helped to some degree. I think political coverage, I mean, this is a very banal thing to say, but I'm not like a Beltway reporter at all. I have covered presidential elections pretty closely since 2008 because there have been women running in them. Right. And so I've sort of been in that mess without having actually been a Beltway reporter. So I have some perspective on this. And I can tell you that the coverage of the 2016 election, and I wrote a lot of critical stuff about it and how it was talked about on cable news. And there's still stuff that like just makes you want to bang your head against a wall. Yeah. But if you look at a lot of the coverage, it was infinitely better. I mean, indescribably better from what I first covered in 2008. Wow. That was basically like a bunch of toddlers running around laughing at a woman's pantsuit and like wolf whistling at Sarah Palin's heels. I mean, seriously, the level of nuance has just altered dramatically in those years. And so I do feel hope that we are getting better 
at how we tell our stories, who tells the stories. This kind of process is happening in publishing, book publishing. There was just a piece in the Times about the hashtag, which in fact produced some of these changes, where you are seeing a sort of mandate finally, like, you know, 200 years late, to actually put non-white people in charge of book publishing, yeah. which is a huge step in terms of whose stories get told and sold to us and who gets paid right. a wage to be able to tell those stories. That has required a corrective for a really long time, and it's not going to be fixed immediately by these things. There's a lot of attention on them, and there are some shifts. And then very often, the force of these systems is so powerful that you don't just fix things by hiring a few people. And one of the big challenges that I grapple with all the time, and increasingly in this period of cataclysm and calamity, right, on so many different scales, is you really do have to uproot the systems just to tear them all up. And, and that doesn't happen very often. It would be almost impossible to tear up the root system that we have in this United States that enables all of these patterns to remain the same, even in the face of important change. But the changes do happen. And so I think that's helping to no longer make the straight white married man in the suburbs, the universal mm -hmm. American that he was probably even a decade ago, mm -hmm. and certainly mm -hmm. not 50 years ago. This gets it so much of what I've been thinking about lately and the stuff I was excited to talk to you about. So one thing that I've been thinking about so much lately in, in the great reckoning of 2020 that we're all dealing mm -hmm. with, and this is not new information. So much of 2020 is not new information, but just stuff that we're Definitely looking not. at it's stuff with that a little more light. light. Yes. Yeah, a little more light and a little more context. Absolutely. I've been thinking a lot about, not for the first time, about how one of the greatest tricks that white feminism ever pulled was teaching ambitious white women that success was equivalent to getting to behave as badly as white men do. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Uh, you know, I think about that when I look at my college era. I think about that when I look at my first job. You know, I think about that just when I consider my own images of success. And I was reminded of this area of consideration as I was refreshing my memory on all the single ladies, your 2016 book. And I saw a quote by a college senior that really jumped out at me. And she said, getting married right now would ruin my life. I want freedom. I want the chance to pick up and move to a new city for a new job or adventure without having to worry about a spouse or family. I need to be able to stay at the office until three in the morning if I oh, have yeah. to and not care about putting dinner on the table. Particularly the last line of that really stood out to me because on one level, I absolutely empathize with this girl and I'm sure that I would have given a similar answer if I were asked some question like this as a college senior. But when I'm thinking about the ways that white men have been allowed to behave badly, I am talking about like drinking and fucking, but I'm not only talking about drinking and fucking. Right. I'm also talking about more capitalistic modes. Committing of, themselves so wholeheartedly to capitalism that they taught us that was what the goal should be. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This culture of overworking and fetishizing overwork and making that equivalent to our worth as tools of capitalism, basically. And also remaining ignorant to the way all of those sort of higher, more white collar career paths are still predicated on the exploitation right. of lower wage workers. Like, are there modes of this, of white men's bad behavior that you'd like to see, especially white feminists unlearn? Or, or how, how do you think about these things? This is so complicated. And it's one I'm still unpacking. God, it's complicated <laughs> for me. Like I still have in my heart, I don't ever want to work till three in the morning. I'm actually the, the opposite of that. No, but I still have in too. my heart a reflexive sympathy or yeah. empathy for that impulse to say like, what if I do want to dedicate myself to my career? Because the inverse was so powerful. And I do think that in a crucial contemporary critique of capitalism, I do think that there's something, the inverse of the message that was sent to women, which is that to prioritize a professional life is perverse, selfish, ugly, like those messages were so strong. It's not that I experienced it myself, although I also want to point out I'm an ambitious person. So I don't also want to pretend that I am unambitious. But there was such a sort of malevolent valence yeah. attached to the word ambition for a whole generation of women. And I think that in fact, the sort of blossoming of that, you know, over the past couple of decades has actually 
then produce the crucial critical response to it. But I do believe there's some space in between, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing that I would say is that one of my anxieties when I first came to write about feminism was that the way that you phrased it at the beginning, that women would just imitate men's bad behavior and that that equals equality. White men's bad behavior. White men's bad behavior and that that sort of tantamount to equality. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that from the beginning I had anxieties about, and I have to say, like, I'm pretty uns schooled in the history of this. I came to feminism and groped around in the dark and my feminism was super rudimentary at the beginning. And so I'm really reaching back here to some of my early anxieties and thinking about how they correspond to the question you asked. Mm -hmm. I am really not an essentialist right? I am not somebody who believes that if women had a tighter grip on power or an equivalent grip on power, that they would behave any better Hmm. than Mm -hmm. men when they have power, right? I'm sort of against inequality. And I do not believe the like the coffee mug stuff, like if women ruled the world, like we'd all be happier Mm -hmm. and communicate more or whatever. I think a lot of the attributes that we attach to say female legislators, that they collaborate more and come to consensus is born out of not having as much power and having to work together in order to be able to effectively participate, right? So I'm not an essentialist. I believe that fundamentally women are just as likely to abuse their power if they have an excess of it as men are. And I'm also really interested in how some of those essentialist notions that women should be better if they have power wind up getting in the way of them actually, like it it sets a higher bar, right? And so this is where the different systems come in. There's one argument, and this comes in in politics all the time, like, do we want representative government? And do we care about electing more women so that our government is representative? That's not necessarily going to mean either left government, (laughs) it's not going to mean progressive government, it's not necessarily even going to mean feminist government. Maybe be by a little because, you know, you have not white women, (laughs) but women as a whole tend to have lefter politics than men. And we're just talking in giant sort of useless aggregates about men and women in categories that don't even really exist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But you're not going to have, it's not just like elect women because I want a more progressive world. There are a couple different strands you have to separate. Do you want to elect women because you actually believe in representative government and that you should have a government that represents and reflects the population that it polices and taxes and legislates around. And I actually think there's merit to that desire. But that's not equal to saying, I want a more progressive government that is going to tax more and police less, right? Right. (laughs) Because the women who might be representative aren't necessarily going to enact those kinds of ideas and they don't necessarily believe them, right? And so that's a conflict you see when you talk about women in politics all the time. And I think it's also around women's participation in capitalism, right? Is part of the interest in the old who is it? It's Bella Abzug who said the goal of feminism isn't just to have another female Einstein. It's to have another female Schlemiel who can advance at the same rate as a male Schlemiel. Now, if you want that, what you're actually in favor of is Schlemielism, which great. Okay. It's in some ways sounds more appealing than hyper-aggression, hyper-capitalist work till three in the morning ambition. But I think the question of, is this the greatest lie that white feminism ever sold is like, there are so many competing desires here between equality and a better world, right? Equality, Mm -hmm. representation, and actually a more progressive world that would mean more equality for more people. Sometimes those things can come together and sometimes they can't. Or sometimes it's not that they can't, but they're at odds and likely to remain at odds. And so how do you reconcile? How do you balance those things? And that's been a big lesson for me. You know, I'm a person who, when Sheryl Sandberg's book came out, I was like, yeah, this book seems fine right? And there was a huge critical backlash against it. And it's one of the things I'm like, oh yeah, you were correct. I was wrong. Yeah, Like that's good. That means the conversation is changing. It's a sign that we're actually making some progress, if not in actually taking apart the systems and rebuilding them, getting better in how we understand what's broken in them and how the ways in which they're broken correspond and conflict.
One of the really fascinating themes of your book is this question of anger and institutions, right? So on the one hand, this kind of suspicion that anger is ultimately not institution building. And I think that the argument of the book is actually it can be. Don't be so quick to kind of just dismiss anger. On the other hand, of course, as you were bringing up, you know, Sheryl Sandberg and Lean In, there is this kind of risk that anger blows open doors and the people who walk through them have to make concessions that essentially make them illegible to other women in the sense that they cannot personify or embody the anger safely that one could when one is completely outside of the institution. That kind of gets us into a really interesting point right right now where I, I think that there's a lot of intergenerational kind of difference around these questions. So are there any ways in which people can stay mad from generation to generation or is walking through those doors that are blown open by anger always going to be is there always going to be a kind of sublimation going on that then gets other people mad at you? Well, yeah, I mean, I think in part, again, because we're talking about these massive systems that are going to continue to exist through any given lifetime, right? right? The best you can hope for is that you live through a period of enormous change. But as we know, and if you look at history, even some people who have lived through like transformational periods and victories in terms of attitudes, law, practice, often can live long enough to see many of those victories reversed. And right. I think there are lots yeah. of women from the second wave who feel like they lived through a revolution in which doors were blown open and A, they're now seeing so much of the progress that they made actually have an entire political party and series of administrations work to reverse the changes, and also then encountering fury from another generation that points out all the ways in which mm -hmm. the progress they made and the revolutionary change they made, A, did not go far enough, and B, right. worked for certain segments of a population. Okay, so in my mind... This is good. This is natural. <laughs> the good thing is that the anger continues, right? right? It's hard to live through. I think this is what you see around some of the anxiety around cancel culture and, you know, but... I think anger, especially when it's in service of a better world, and this is a really hard, this is a really hard needle to thread because who's to say, I mean, in some cases, when you're talking about the women shaking their fists at school integration in the mid 20th century, the white women, you know, out there screaming at black students integrating schools, you can very easily say that is women's anger that is marshaled on the wrong side of history. Right. And then when you get into some of the intergenerational and factional disputes around mm -hmm. feminism and anti-racism, and in a LGBTQ movement and all those generational furies, you can see them replicated in every, the uses of violence and confrontation, compromise versus unyielding fury, like whether it's strategic or stylistic, whether it's right. capitalism versus Marxism, like you see those happening in every movement for change. And in the overarching scope of things, I think that's super healthy because I think what it mostly says, every once in a while you have the generational backlash where the next generation just wants to go in reverse, right? Wants to say, you went too far. I'm embarrassed about you, hairy-legged feminists. That's what I grew up in the midst of, right? In the 1980s, the Schlafly-Reagan right. years, uh, just pure anti-feminism. But then when you get the generation that comes after that says, actually, I'm mad at you for a different reason. You needed to be more feminist, right? <laughs> right? I think that's good. You need a kind of fury and desire for big change in order to power you to a next step of making the world better. And that often comes from, these are giant generational generalizations, but often that comes from youth, right? And people who haven't necessarily right. lived through compromise and been disappointed or defeated as much, right? You also sort of need some of, I think, some of the pushback of experience. And I think in that conflict, that's part of what can produce progress. It doesn't always. And it, often can include pain and fury and frustration and especially, you know, in periods of and in mm -hmm. communities that are suffering. Mm -hmm. It's not just like, oh, these things take time. Like there are mm -hmm. costs to every minute that it yeah. takes. But that's been true throughout the history of this nation and around the world. So anyway, I guess I'm pro intergenerational anger <laughs> because I do think that it is the fury of the next generation. And it's regularly directed at me. I mean, I'm, I'm old now. I mean, we're both asking this as college professors. 
years, right? Like right. we get a lot of this. At the same time, I must admit that I find it often very viscerally difficult, but generative because yes. I know from my older colleagues the opposite, mm-hmm. where they felt they had to stoke the anger. They felt like there wasn't any anger, mm-hmm. especially during what you called the Reagan Schlafly years, right? Like where there was just they were like, no, I mean, look, look at these statistics, please, and tell me you're not mad about right. this. Mm-hmm. And I'll take a student who comes in with a belly full of fire, and I sort of have to sort of be like, okay, mm-hmm. let's read this text first, then maybe you can rip it apart. I'll take that over an inability to get angry any day. I love that you use the word generative because it's one of my favorite words that Audre Lorde uses about the anger between allies, right? And that's exactly the thing is the anger between allies. And of course, there she's talking about black women and white women and black feminists and white feminists and the fury about white supremacy within feminism. Mm -hmm. And what she's describing is that the expression of that anger it makes something new and makes something better. Exactly right. as you said, it is generative. It creates something good. And again, having grown up in the Schlafly Reagan years, I mean, I grew up in a left-leaning household, but in a very, very conservative white working class suburb and then conservative college life. I myself wasn't a conservative, obviously, but everything felt stifled. The idea of fury, political fury, righteous anger from young people in my generation, it existed on the margins and it certainly existed culturally. And there were, I don't want to take anything away from the people who remained angry and correct that whole time while the communities around me were kind of apathetic. Mm -hmm. But I also know coming from a family of academics that exactly what you described, just general apathy on campuses was the hallmark of a couple of decades there. And that what's happening there now, I do see many people made very nervous by (laughs) by the level of anger and intensity of students. And like you, I think, hey, I would rather have this over the alternative any day. I cannot miss the opportunity to talk to you about motherhood in 2020. I want to narrate for you that I'm sitting in a nursing chair with my computer and my microphone on a diaper changing table and my phone resting on a copy of The Very Hungry Caterpillar. So like motherhood (laughs) is woven into the fabric of this conversation already. But I guess, you know, we talked just a little bit before we got online about the challenges that we're both facing as parents right now in this lockdown era. And I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Like, you have written so powerfully in both All the Single Ladies and Good and Mad. You're such a masterful worker of data synthesis, and you do so much to illustrate the economic depression that women have always been kept in in Uh America. And we're seeing totally same song 87th verse of that with the Uh disproportionate childcare and domestic labor burden that's falling on women in this era. I would love to just hear your perspective about that, either as a thinker and a journalist or in terms of how it's playing out in your own life and the lives around you. Well, you know, in my own life, while this period is scary and discomforting and it is very difficult to get work done, I have no complaints that would even register on the scale of complaints. Yes. Right? Same. Which isn't to say I don't have complaints. Same. <laughs> they yes. just don't. They just don't <laughs> register. The things that I am seeing happening, I'm like having a hard time wrapping my head around the scope of what's happening. And the very uncomfortable thing right now, which I think I'm actually trying to work on a short column about this, which is slightly detached from motherhood, but it certainly comes into my experience of motherhood, Mm -hmm. the experience of not knowing the answer and not knowing how to even begin to wrap your head around the scope of what's happening, what's going to happen next, what is possible to do about it or in reaction to it, Mm -hmm. what your moral responsibilities are versus your familial responsibilities, your civic responsibility versus your personal responsibility, all those things, which for me has just the most, and this is motherhood, but it extends beyond that. Like just these looming stomach turning questions of what is the right answer and the competing needs health wise, child wise, adult wise. This is the experience of not knowing is so, so powerful right now. And I think very connected to also white middle class assumptions of power. It's something I'd been railing about in political punditry, you know, over the past year, truly with regard to like the primary race and horse race coverage and people saying, well, what's going to happen? And based on what happened in 92, and if you look at these polls and sort of this predictive impulse to remain in control of an uncontrolled political situation was to create a whole industry of assuredness. And 
and I had been railing against that with regard to political commentary. And now I feel it's sort of in the scope of everything and the assuredness of you can feel it around the school debates. You know, we should open the schools. Here's what everything said. We should not open the schools. Here's what everything said. This is crazy. You're crazy. And I'm like, I don't know. And I think that this is also a lot about white middle class power and the sense of control and having answers as being a facet of your power, confidence and certainty about what's going to happen next week and what's going to happen in September and what's going to happen in November. And that there's a whole bunch of people who've been loosed from that certainty. And it's a very uncomfortable experience. And I include myself in that number. Obviously, the absolute mess around schools and kids and the mashup of need and risk and harm that we see happening. And on the one hand, it is impossible to piece it out, right? It is impossible to sort of separate the risks that students, the harm that kids are enduring, especially in homes where there is not access to remote schooling possibilities, to food, to security, kids in homes where there is abuse, kids who don't have access to teachers who they might talk to about it, kids who don't have access to the education possibility that the whole world of more privileged kids are actually not going to lose in the long term. That harm and that risk also weighed against the risk in many of the very same communities and families where adults are at risk. Multi-generational households, the adults who would be going back into schools as teachers and administrators and janitors and bus drivers and the risks that they would incur to reopen schools. Mm -hmm. And then all of that versus the toll that this is taking. And there was a story in the Times today about the tolls that this is taking, especially on mothers who are reducing their participation in the workforce at a far higher rate than fathers. And the balancing of all of this, which of course our government did not make this virus, but the grotesque mismanagement that left us in a position to be weighing all these things fundamentally as individuals running around pretending that we're sure about what an answer is when there is no good answer. The problem is there's no good answer because this has been monumentally murderously mismanaged by our government at federal, state, and local levels, right? In both parties. And what we're left with is millions of people being harmed, having their health, their economic stability, their ability to remain housed, all of that imperiled by malevolent incompetence in government. And the result is going to be in this chaos and the fact that there's no answer that the people who have the most power are going to retain that power. And that's you see that around, you know, Ivanka Trump right. tweeting about the skills. And, oh, my God. I mean, this that, stuff is yeah. it's it's just evil. And to get upset about it is like it's boring at this point. Like, yes, they're evil monsters, but not just certainly not just Ivanka Trump or just Donald Trump. Like this is in the grip of malevolent and harmful systems that are designed to exploit and spit out those who don't have power within them. And that is going to be part of what comes out of this, except that we are also in a period where I do believe, and this is if I couldn't retain optimism, then I couldn't do my work or get up in the mornings. I think we're also in a period where so much of this, in fact, in this calamity is becoming visible to more people. And I wish that it didn't have to happen this way, right? Right. I wish it didn't have to be that 5.4 million people lost their jobs and got kicked off of their employer's health insurance in order for them to understand that having health care tied to employment is a bad fucking idea. But yeah. that is actually what has just happened. Yeah. And I have to have hope that some of the inequity that's been exposed, and you can see it in the opinion polling around the protests this summer, the participation, yeah, the largest thing. social movement in this country's history. I think mm-hmm. people expected mm-hmm. the opinion polling to go in the other direction. Certainly there were big factions of the right that were counting on the fact that these protests were going to stir racist resentment. And, you know, it's not that that didn't happen in certain sectors, but the vast opinion polling showing that some large portion of the American people have been moved in a way they never have been before to understand systemic racism. That tells me that we're in a period not just of calamity Mm -hmm. and cataclysm, and we are, but there is also opportunity there for change growth. And I hope, I hope it's one of those periods where some explosive change might be possible. And that's, what I have to tell myself before I fall asleep every night. I don't know what to say. 
I hear you. Can I ask maybe to both of you, I'm not a parent myself, how does parenting work during this? Because on the one hand, of course, there is this interesting, I mean, and not in terms of the ins and outs, but in terms of... That's what got us into the parenting in the first place, but... <laughs> right. What, what, yeah. How do you end up transmitting this unsureness to children? Can you deal with it to some extent? Can you acknowledge it? Or is that just something that isn't worth laying on them. I'm asking this because, of course, one other thing that the protests have shown since the Women's March, really, is kind of, again, an intergenerational transmission of rage, right? Mothers and their daughters being equally, you know, shaking fists together and drawing signs together. I mean, I'm not saying that didn't happen before, but this is kind of, it's interesting. The fact that rage and a sense of the way things are is not okay being really kind of shared as a broad consensus within families. It's very different from the way I at least imagined the 60s being, right? Where it's like, you know, the long-haired hippie and then you have Archie Bunker yelling about, uh, you know, as long as you're going to eat at my table, you have to stop smoking right. dope or whatever. Here we have like, no, it's a co-generational project. Mm. So how do you deal with this? Do you transmit any of this frustration to your children? Or do you sort of say, ah, you know, <laughs> in college or something? <laughs> I transmit it all. I do too. I yeah. should say my kids are nine and five. And especially my nine-year-old basically since birth has been extremely just naturally engaged and interested. And I transmit it all. And then the sort of personal part, I mean, I think the the thing, and again, the fact that I'm in a position to also transmit a kind of personal and intimate sense of security to them, you know, Right. that's the other half of it that is born of the privileges that my family has and the position that we're in. I transmit my fury, my rage, and the fact that we don't know what's happening and that, you know, I transmit that stuff. And it's, I think, probably falls easier because they don't feel personally insecure mm -hmm. in certain mm -hmm. ways. Right. And so I think it falls differently and is more absorbed, mm -hmm. perhaps more easily. Yeah, I guess I'm realizing now I should have probably asked my question a little bit more carefully because it's really among the privileged, there was no need for intergenerational anger. Right. The people who can choose whether right. or not to explain certain things. Yes. The people in a family where, right. where everyone's yeah. mad at the bank or right. mad at, you know, the KKK or mad at the government that won't let anyone vote or the kids go to school. Obviously, that's intergeneration anger by definition. But here it seems to be penetrating into, into a sphere where previously the idea of Parenting was about stopping sort of the, the transmission of rage. Yeah, I, tr I transmitted. <laughs> I don't see an alternative. Like, I can't, I, no, I'm not either. a good enough actor to do anything else, I don't think. Right. Uh, <laughs> I also do feel that responsibility, as you said. I and, mean, and that, yeah. Like, there's a degree to which my kids are protected from an awful lot automatically. Why on earth do I need to protect them right. from something that millions of other kids don't have automatic protection from? Don't Why get opt out of. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Totally. I think this is going to be our last question because yeah, I gotta go. Rebecca's on deadline, listeners. So I think it's worth mentioning the way you came to us, which is that friend of the podcast, Moira Donegan, sang your praises and offered to put us in touch with you. And I want to quote what Moira told us about you. She said, Rebecca will be really busy, but I've never had a conversation with Rebecca Traster that didn't leave me feeling both smarter and angrier, <laughs> um, which... I know what she means. And, uh, you know, in addition to Moira, I have sources that inform me that you've been a really influential feminist mentor to folks like Anne Friedman and Aminatou So and Samita Mukhopadhyay. And I'm thinking of like a lot of the feministing masthead here. And I just wanted to ask if there were people who have mentored you in that way that made a difference for you or your career. That's a lovely question and a lovely observation. I do care a lot about mentors. And I had most of my mentors were not necessarily in feminism. Mm. They were in journalism, like the mm -hmm. people who taught me how to report, in some cases, my editors, an editor named Lisa Chase, an editor named Frank DiGiacomo, my editor and the person who brought me to Salon, Lori Leibovich. Again, this probably has to do with where I was situated generationally. It didn't occur to me when I became a journalist, which was when I was at about 25. There was no mainstream feminist journalism at that point. Katha Pollitt was writing for The Nation, mm -hmm. as she had been right. for some years at that point. But there wasn't, this was pre-feministing. It was pre-Jezebel. It was pre, you know, again, there was definitely a zine culture, a feminist music scene, all of that. But as far as mainstream journalism, journalism, there wasn't that. So, so much of my mentorship came from editors who weren't necessarily at all right. connected to feminist mm -hmm. 
thought. And a lot of the people you name as like mentees for me are the people who I think of maybe not as mentors, but as partners and sort of working through a lot of what's happened since, you know, Mm. again, I talked about like my entry into writing about feminism was really rudimentary. I have changed what I think about a million things a million times in the 15 or so years that I've been writing from a feminist perspective. And in part, I've done that changing and growing alongside a lot of women and men, including those people who you name, including Moira. I learn from Moira all the time. Same. I learn from, you know, Aminatu. I learn from Samita. And that's been true for years at this point. And so in that regard, I think of my path as less having been shaped by mentorship than partnerships, intellectual mm. and emotional mm. relationships with my colleagues and peers who are doing this kind of work. And that also helps me seek out the voices that I find really exciting and challenging and promising who are younger, sometimes even when a lot of the ways that they're challenging are challenging me very directly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I try to pay attention to the ones who I think are challenging me in really smart and important ways. Right. And yeah, I think mentorship is really important. And I could never have become a journalist without it. Again, that's more of a sort of editorial, like teaching me how to do the job of writing and reporting and meeting deadlines and all that kind of stuff. That came from a series of people who weren't necessarily in the feminist sphere, mm. but who were my bosses and editors and mentors Mm -hmm. in magazines and Mm -hmm. newspapers. We should let you get to your deadline. I know how those go. I'm going to be so late with my story. Oh my God. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We're eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a Building Named for a Woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we're especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, and Sarah Mersney. The Podfather is Arlenier Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following product, services, and entities. Blue Apron, Hymns, Casper Mattresses, and That Stupid Wine Club started by two MIT grads. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support, and we will find you. We'd appreciate it so much if instead you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there.